Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is August 18th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, Are TPA Stroke Trials Really Fragile? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Jeff Saver. He is a professor for clinical research, Carol and James Collins Chair, Department of Neurology, Director of the UCLA Comprehensive Stroke and Vascular Neurology Program at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Welcome to the SGEM, Jeff. It's very good to be here, Ken. Well, it is so great to have you on the SGEM. I've been really anticipating doing this recording with you because we have this super interesting backstory. At least I think it's super interesting. And we've got a great topic to discuss. I knew you from your multiple publications in the stroke literature. I mean, you are a well-known individual. And then recently, an EM doctor sent me a video of a presentation that was being given at a stroke meeting. And on one of the slides, it is referred to me, among others, Daniel Fadovich, as, quote, non-expert EM contrarians. Yes, and as we discussed, that was perhaps an inartful, but not inaccurate, I think, reference to lacking disease-specific expertise. Yeah. And so when I got that, I, I tried not to respond emotionally. I just reached out to you and said, hey, can we talk about this? And we had actually a very good conversation. And, and you clarified that what you meant by non-expert was not being a stroke neurologist or emergency physicians with a subspecialty neuro expertise, such as having completed a fellowship training or neurologic critical care training. And that's absolutely true. And you also did acknowledge that both Dr. Fadovich and I had expertise on critical appraisal of the medical literature. Yes, there are content experts and methodologic experts and experts in both. And it's best when both types of experts work together. Yeah, the best of both worlds. And I think it ended very well with me telling you, you know what, I'm going to put together some red and white Canadian t-shirts that have on the front of the chest, non-expert EM contrarians. And you said, yeah, I'll take one of those, Ken. Yeah, I look forward to receiving it. It will be unique in my collection. <laughs> well, you recently reached out to me with your new publication called Fragility Index, Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials show highly robust evidential strength for benefit of less than three hours intravenous altiplase. And you were asking me about my thoughts on your publication. So first of all, congratulations. It's always a thrill when you get, you see your name published and stuff like that. So congratulations on another publication. And I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity to dig deeper into the idea of the fragility index and have you on the SGEM as a guest skeptic and expert in stroke neurology. So thank you for graciously agreeing to be on the show. And thank you for graciously inviting me. Well, we had a couple of individuals on the show who strongly support the use of TPA in acute ischemic stroke. Uh, one was Dr. Eddie Lang, who's a well-known Canadian researcher and emergency physician in Calgary, Alberta. Eddie appeared on the SGEM Extra episode called walk of life to discuss acute ischemic stroke. We had a debate on the issue of TPA for stroke published in CGEM, that's the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine, back in 2020 as part of their debate series. And Eddie is also the senior author on the CGEM article summarizing 
Canadian Stroke Best Practices 2018 Guidelines. And these Canadian guidelines give a level A recommendation for the use of TPA in acute ischemic stroke in patients last seen normal within 4.5 hours. Yes, the Canadian guidelines differ a bit from the American Heart and American Stroke Association guidelines. The AHA, ASA guidelines give an evidence level A recommendation for the use of TPA within three hours of onset, but an evidence level B recommendation for the use of TPA between three to four and a half hours after onset. So we're a bit more conservative. Now, we've had a neurology resident on an episode critically appraising a systematic review and meta-analysis of endovascular therapy, plus or minus TPA's bridging therapy, and that was SGEM 349. A few more publications have come out since that podcast, and the European Stroke Organization recommends IV thrombolysis before mechanical thrombectomy in patients with acute ischemic stroke and anterior circulation large vessel occlusions. Interestingly, there was a bit of race-ethnic variation in the results of the six RCTs that examined bridging lytics versus direct thrombectomy. The trials performed in Asia tended to show equivalence, while those in Europe and Australia tended to show a slight advantage of bridging. A leading hypothesis is that this is because Asian patients have intracranial atherosclerotic disease as their stroke mechanism more often, while non-Asians more often have embolic events. And since embolic occlusions consist entirely of thrombus, they may be a bit more responsive to lytic therapy. Oh, that's why I asked you to be on the show, you know, getting that nuance and pulling out some of the subtleties and why are there differences between different groups? There have been several TPA skeptics on the SGEM, including Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Fadovich, and Dr. Morgenstern. However, not until now have we had a stroke neurologist who's very much in support of using TPA in acute ischemic stroke. And I think it's very important to try to mitigate against being in an echo chamber. We all have biases. We need to listen carefully to other points of views. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Epistemic closure, cognitive insularity, is not a wise approach to any subject. All right. Well, let's get to talking about your publication. And to remind everybody, it's called the Fragility Index Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials Show Highly Robust Evidential Strength for Benefit of Less Than Three Hours Intravenous Altiplase. So who are your co-authors on this publication? Well, the lead author was Catherine Munn, a stroke fellow with us at the time who's now on faculty at UCLA. And the other senior author with me was Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician with subspecialty training in neurocritical care, who's director of the emergency medicine critical care division at University of Cincinnati. So what was the inspiration? Why did you decide to write this article using the Fragility Index? For two reasons. First, a few blog postings had appeared stating that the fragility index analyses uh, suggested the evidential basis for lytic therapy and stroke was not robust, but those analyses had errors and focused only on single trials, not the aggregated evidence of all eight trials in under three-hour patients. Uh, Second, The fragility index provided a way to compare the strength of the evidence for TPA in stroke with that 
for many other treatments in clinical medicine. Well, Jeff, some SGEM listeners may not be that familiar with the Fragility Index. It's a rather new statistical tool that was introduced in the past decade. Could you just briefly review the concept and bring everybody up to speed on what the Fragility Index is? Sure. The Fragility Index is the minimum number of non-events that, when changed to events in one arm of an interventional trial or meta-analysis of trials, converts the result to statistical non-significance. Lower FIs indicate greater fragility, higher FIs, more robust results. And that definition you just gave is slightly different than the one that was provided by Walsh et al. in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology back in 2014, because it doesn't mention systematic reviews and meta-analyses. It was just looking at randomized control trials when they first came out. And there are critics of the fragility index who says, you know what, you're just restating the p-value in a different way. And medicine has this very low bar of p-values of 0.05 or 95%, which represent two sigmas to get over to consider something, quote, statistically significant. In contrast, you go to particle physics and they use not two sigmas, not three, not four, but five sigmas. So 99.9999%. And this gives you a p-value of three times 10 to the minus seven or one in 3.5. And I have to put my finger to the corner of my mouth when I say this million chance the data is at least as extreme as what they observed. Now, there's been a lot of ink that's been spilled about the problems with p-values. Over 800 scientists called for the abandonment of this, quote, statistical significance. What are your thoughts, Jeff, on the use and misuse of p-values? Well, I fully agree with the American Statistical Association recommendations to stop using the single less than 0.05 threshold that Ronald Fisher somewhat cavalierly chose in the 1920s now is a magical indicator of whether something works or doesn't work. Statisticians universally recognize that there's no important difference between a p-value of 0.049 and a p-value of 0.051. The former indicates a 1 in 20.4, possibly that the results arose by chance, the latter a 1 in 19.6 possibility. It would be better to approach p-values as we do for other statistical uh, values like areas under the curve and kappa values and to recognize ranges along a spectrum indicating modest, substantial, and extensive evidence that a result has not arisen by chance. Yeah, I think it was designed originally, this p-value, just to be sort of a sniff test. Is there is there anything there to further look into? But others have said, you know what, why don't we just raise the bar by lowering the number we would consider statistically significant from 0.05 to 0.005 to be more certain and mitigate against things like p-hacking. Do you think we should change what is considered statistically significant by an order of magnitude to 0.005? I I think it's best to avoid reifying any single threshold and rather choose desirable levels of evidence that are appropriate for different use cases. For example, the FDA drug branch generally does use an order of magnitude's uh, stricter p-value threshold of 0.0025 in order to approve new class drugs. 
while the FDA device branch frequently uses 0.05 to clear new devices. And there are good, though not uncriticable, reasons for the different approaches. Well, do you think that this fragility index conveys different information that we can obtain already through the p-value statistic? And if not, how would your analysis using this cumulative fragility index change our confidence in the TPA evidence for acute ischemic stroke that we could not already obtain from that gold standard systematic review of individual patient data like the 2014 Emerson publication? Well, the fragility index is strongly influenced by statistical unlikelihood, like the PVO that's entirely determined by it. But the fragility index is also influenced by study size and by the magnitude of the intervention treatment effect. So it has slightly different properties that makes it behave a little uh, complexly. Well, the FI or the fragility index is a summary statistic. And you sort of alluded to this about you know, let's not just look at one point, one data point and make decisions. And so the fragility index is not unlike the number needed to treat with both strengths and weaknesses. A major strength of the fragility index is its simplicity. I mean, it makes complex research seem easier to understand. But a weakness, however, is also its simplicity because It hides the complexity of research. It ignores confidence intervals and obscures potential biases. So at the end of the day, do you you really think that the fragility index is a useful metric or is it how you use it? I think it's generally not a useful metric for the reasons you mentioned, but also more importantly, because it reinforces the undue emphasis on assessing trial statistical significance in a binary manner with an arbitrary P less than 0.05 threshold. However, it did have one aspect that was helpful in our analysis, that of characterizing extreme statistical significance, allowing comparison to other treatments in medicine. Now, this could also be done with p-values, but p-values of extreme significance are often not specified. It is stated that the p-value is less than 0.01, but not how much less. And that's in part because many statisticians don't think anyone would need to see the exact stream p-value beyond less than 0.01 to be convinced. Well, often people will criticize a trial because of a low fragility index. And I'm sure I've been guilty of that in the past. But hopefully we learn as we understand and grow and read more about statistics and clinical epidemiology. You know, studies are generally powered for their primary outcome of efficacy. And to be efficient, researchers estimate how many participants would they need to observe the magnitude of the effect size to be, quote, statistically significant. And this power calculation should be done a priori based on some delta that is decided upon of a difference between treatment and control. And if a study is done correctly, most should give a result that clusters around a p-value of 0.05. Therefore, the study would be designed to have a low fragility index. And it can be considered a circular argument to then criticize the study as being, quote, fragile. So another way to interpret this, and this sort of dawned on me recently, was, you know, a low fragility index could be interpreted as the researchers did a fantastic job. They did such a great job of estimating the number of participants necessary to answer their hypothesis, and they should be congratulated for conducting a very efficient trial 
that was not overpowered, which didn't waste time, resources, and patience. I, I fully concur. A, a major problem with the fragility index is that it makes people switch from considering the results against the null hypothesis of zero effect to inappropriately considering results against a hypothesis of slightly lower treatment effect than that observed. Well, let's get back to your study itself, because we've talked about the fragility index. So hopefully people will get their head around that. And now we can dive into what you actually did. And you start your introduction by saying the era of performing randomized control trials comparing TPA for acute ischemic stroke in less than three hours for patients with small to medium level occlusions, it's over. And this is because it's the standard of care, making it unethical to randomize patients to placebo. What evidence do you su use to support this position? Well, in the article, we only had space to cite five national or multinational practice guidelines, including the U.S. American Heart American Stroke Guidelines, the European, Canadian, and Korean Guidelines, and the 2013 Joint Statement by ASEP and American Neurologic Association. Others include practice guidelines in China, Japan, India, Australia, Argentina, and many others. In fact, there is a worldwide consensus in practice guidelines across five continents, North and South America, Europe, Asia, and Africa, supporting the use of TPA for acute ischemic stroke within three hours of onset. So there are lots and lots of guidelines that address this issue. Of course, it piqued my interest to see the ASAP referred to as an emergency physician, the American College. And you referenced a 2013 joint statement by ASAP and the ANA. But ASAP has updated their position statement on stroke in 2015 with lead author Dr. Michael Brown. And they gave no level A recommendations in their policy statement. I'm just wondering, you know, you mentioned this a little bit before. Do you have any ideas why the ASAP policy statement seems to differ from AHA? And that seems to be a bit different from, you know, the Europeans and the Canadian Best Stroke Practice Guidelines. Why do you think that there's these little nuances and little differences between these guidelines? Well, for the 2015 ASAP statement. First, let me note, it does recommend the use of IVTPA under three hours. So there's not a major disagreement here. It's a smaller one over strength of evidence. And of course, I don't know why for sure the statement differed on that point, but I suspect the contributing factor was that the composition of the panel deviated from that recommended for guideline generation, and that included only members of one specialty and not members of multiple specialties. The Panel members, therefore, may not have had the opportunity to fully appreciate the evidence across all trials in the under three-hour window. Please let me note that, in contrast, the 2019 American Heart American Stroke Association guidelines, the current guidelines, included experts from five specialties and subspecialties, including four emergency physicians. And indeed, one of the emergency physicians was Michael Brown, suggesting that the larger range of perspectives was helpful in refining viewpoints. Well, that points out that, you know what, medicine is a team sport, and it's not a sport, but it's a team event or a team practice, and, and we're all on team patients. So it's good to get all the team members who help contribute to taking great care of patients. So I think that's great that you brought up the 2019 and that it had uh, emergency physicians on that group. 
Now, the ethics of conducting a placebo-controlled TPA trial is another interesting comment and question that was in there. Stroke neurologist Dr. Peter Applerose and colleague wrote an editorial, quote, ethical issues in stroke thrombolysis revisited. It was a follow-up to a bioethical paper written in 1997 by Furland and Kanadi, and the original article identified five areas of concern. And Aparos' position is that these ethical issues that were raised over two decades ago have not been satisfactorily answered. Have you read that editorial, and and what are your thoughts on that? I I have read the editorial, and two of the ethical issues certainly still are unanswered. Difficulty in determining patient preferences and in obtaining informed consent for an emergency treatment where every minute matters. But these issues remain unanswered for all hyperacute interventions that emergency physicians perform. The other three issues have been resolved. They're based on out-of-date statistical views and interval research between 1997 and now has put them to rest. And standard of care, that was also mentioned, and this is an interesting topic. It's a legal term that has a specific definition, so I pulled one out of a legal dictionary. So standard of care was considered the reasonable degree of care a person should provide to another person, typically in a professional or medical setting. And standard of care is often discussed amongst emergency physicians, and I'll throw a reference in the show notes. Standard of care does not necessarily mean the best care, though. And there are many examples in medicine where the standard of care was not the best care. And the classic story I've often told is about bloodletting. That was on SGEM number 200. Standard of care could be the best care, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is the best care. And so it could also be considered an argument from popularity. And I think it's better for us as scientists to really just dig in and look at the evidence. Do you agree? Well, our era of evidence-based medicine is different from the humoral theory era. (laughs) Now, standard of care is generally shaped by practice guidelines that themselves are generally shaped by the evidence. But I fully concur that the appropriate treatment for a patient is best determined by scientific rather than legal standards of evidence. I agree. All right. Um, Can you briefly describe the methods that you used uh, for the Fragility Index study? The methods section, that's my favorite section of a paper. Sure. First, we performed an updated traditional study level meta-analysis per PRISMA guidelines and also analyzed the recent individual patient level meta-analysis. We did a, for the study level meta-analysis, structured literature search, identifying all randomized trials reporting under three-hour data specifically and separately. Two independent reviewers abstracted the data on three outcomes, freedom from disability, MRS 0 to 1, at three to six months, functional independence, MRS 0 to 2, at three to six months, and mortality at three to six months. That data was then aggregated using the Cochrane RevMan software to generate forest plots. Then we proceeded to perform the fragility index meta-analysis using the same data inputs and using the method for meta-analysis of fragility indices that has been developed by Atal and colleagues at the Epidemiology Research Center at the Sorbonne. Well, using your definition of fragility index, which was the minimum number of non-events that would have changed to events in one arm of the intervention trial or meta-analysis of trials, converts the results to statistically non-significant. In other words, that 
FI is the minimum number of patients who would need to have tipped over that different outcome to change the p-value from less than 0.5 to greater than 0.5. So then how many would be required to flip statistically significant to insignificant or a positive to a negative result? And that gets into the whole dichotomization of trials. There's only one randomized control trial that had a positive result for their primary outcome, and that was NINS Part 2. Do you think it's reasonable to include seven other randomized control trials that didn't have a statistically positive result for their primary outcome? All those individual randomized control trials would have had a fragility index of zero because their p-value was greater than 0.5. Well, first, just so everyone is clear, uh, let me note there are now three individually positive randomized trials of alteplase for stroke in addition to NINS Part 2. There's also the positive ECAS-3 trial and the positive wake-up trial. Uh, those were not included, the latter two in our review, because they did not enroll under three-hour patients. But the pattern of results across all of the trials we analyzed is entirely reasonable. After TPA was shown to work in the sweet spot of within three hours of onset, when there's the most brain to save, trials sought to map the limits of its benefit, exploring other populations less likely to be responsive. But if you just look as we did at the sweet spot of the under three-hour patients, then three of the eight trials were statistically significant positive singly. And four of the remaining five were directionally favorable. The parent trials of some of these subgroups enrolled patients between three to six hours of onset, which of course diluted the treatment effect, so they were not positive in their overall population. Interestingly, for trials that are near positive, the literature has developed the reverse fragility index, looking at how many events needed to convert to non-events to convert the results to statistical significance. And several of these parent trials had low fragility indices, reverse fragility indices, indicating that their findings of non-significance across the entire up to six-hour range was fragile. So one quality metric we look for when authors are doing a meta-analysis is to do a risk of bias or ROB assessment. What tool did you use to assess the risk of potential biases in the included studies in your systematic review? We use the Cochrane Risk of Bias 2 Rob tool tool. And you rated all the studies having low risk of bias in the domains of randomization process and missing outcome data. There are two papers that have been recently published that differ from this assessment. Why do you think there's a difference between your assessment of risk of bias and other people's uh, assessment of risk of bias in those two domains of randomization and missing outcome data? Well, Both those papers were from the same group. And with regard to randomization process, unlike them, we followed best practices in trial risk of bias rating by contacting the study authors to obtain unpublished information that resolved the concerns raised. With regard to missing outcome data, among the six overlapping trials analyzed in our analysis and their analysis, the rate of missingness was generally low according to ROB2 instructions. And all six, in addition, used conservative methods of imputation. Two used worst-case analysis. Four used last observation carry-forward analysis, which for a condition that improves after ictus-like stroke is a conservative approach. 
Accordingly, if the missing outcome data had any influence, it would have most likely biased each trial to underestimating, not overestimating the treatment effect. Well, you also rated the IST3 trial as having a low risk of bias from deviations from the intended intervention. The trial was mostly open label or unblinded, and most participants were aware of their assigned intervention during the trial. Could you explain why your assessment of low risk deviates from the Cochrane guidance of high risk? Well, we actually rated it as intermediate risk because the final outcome assessment was unblinded, and that follows the ROB2. We did recognize that that was an aspect of IST3. Okay, so one of the eight trials that were included reported a statistical benefit for the primary outcome. That was NINS Part 2. The number of missing outcomes in that study was 11, and that is greater than the fragility index of 5. How can readers be certain about the robustness of the results without using an analysis of multiple different imputation methods for managing missing data as GRADE recommends? Well, readers can be reassured by two considerations. First, the ratio of missing data to outcome events across all studies meets GRADE recommendations for considering a meta-analysis to have a low risk of bias. Second, as I noted, the imputation methods that were employed for that relatively modest amount of missing data were extremely conservative and would tend to lead to underestimation, not overestimation, of treatment effect. All right, let's get into some of your data then. The primary outcome of interest for your systematic review was a fragility index for TPA in acute ischemic stroke in patients treated within three hours or last seen normal was disability freedom. And you define disability freedom as a modified Rankin scale or an MRS score of zero to one. What did you find? For freedom from disability, data were available from eight trials enrolling 1,960 patients. And active treatment was associated with increased disability-free outcome, 31% for TPA, 22.3% for control, relative risk 1.39 with a 95% CI of 1.20 to 1.61. And the p-value was less than 0.00001. So let me note the extreme significance of the p-value. It indicates that the possibility that TPA is not beneficial for increasing freedom from disability is one in 100,000. The chance that it is beneficial is 99,999 out of 100,000. There was no evidence of heterogeneity across the studies. The I squared was 2% and the heterogeneity p-value was 0.42. And let me note that to my knowledge, while tenuously positive meta-analysis results have sometimes not been confirmed in large follow-up trials, no meta-analysis with anywhere near this extreme statistical significance has ever been disconfirmed. All right, so that was your primary outcome. The secondary outcome was functional independence, and you defined functional independence as a modified Rankin scale score of zero to two. What do you define for that secondary outcome? For functional independence, outcome rates were 39.7% for TPA versus 31.2% for control relative risk 1.29, 95% CI 1.14 to 1.45. The p-value was less than 0.0001. 
Uh, again, let me note that extremely significant p-value indicating that the possibility that TPA is not beneficial for increasing functional independence is one in 10,000. The chance it is beneficial is 9,999 out of 10,000. There was, again, no evidence of heterogeneity across the trials. The I-squared was 0% and the heterogeneity p-value 0.95. And what did you find for the other secondary safety endpoint? This was for mortality. For mortality, the outcome rate with TPA was 24.1% versus 26.1% with control. This difference was not statistically significant. The relative risk was 0.91 with a 95% CI between 0.78 to 1.06 and a p-value of 0.23. Well, Jeff, as mentioned earlier, with summary statistics, we need to be mindful of the biases that may be in the original studies themselves. How do you think the following would potentially impact your analysis? And I had two points. One was about NINs, and that was the likely errors in randomization identified by Dr. Gar that can't be corrected with individual patient data. And you already mentioned the lack of blinding for IST3. Well, the NINS randomization process does not engender concerns, as I'll explain when addressing Dr. Gallagher's comments at the end of our discussion. So no impact on our analysis there. For IST3, the final outcome was elicited by postal questionnaire from patients and their families six months after they had received the one-hour initial therapy, active or controlled. There's no credible reason to think that patients and family self-reports, especially after so long a delay, would have systematically biased the trial outcomes in one direction or another. So no impact on our analysis there as well. All right, it's time to drill down and get to your actual numbers for your results. What were the fragility indexes for disability freedom, that's that MRS of 0 to 1, and functional independence, that's the MRS of 0 to 2, and then finally mortality. So what did you find for your fragility index numbers? For freedom from disability, uh, the fragility indices were 42 for the study-level meta-analysis and 40 for the individual participant data meta-analysis placing both in uh, the category of evidential strength that is highly robust, which was defined as a fragility index greater than 33. For functional independence, the fragility indices were 40 for both the study level and individual participant level meta-analyses, again placing the evidential strength in the highly robust category. For the safety endpoint of mortality, The reverse fragility index was 30 for the individual participant level meta-analysis, which for a RFI indicates a highly robust evidential foundation, which is defined as an RFI value greater than 17. All right. We've been throwing around this term highly robust. What scale or metric are you using to characterize this result? Is there some agreed upon definition or categories or criteria? Uh, We categorized the fragility indice values based on the study of Vital and colleagues, which analyzed all Cochrane systematic reviews for all conditions from 2011 to 2014. They identified 906 study-level meta-analyses 
encompassing 6,625 individual trials. And among these, 400 were statistically significant, and the median was four, and the interquartile range was one to 33. We categorized the fragility indice intervals in the lowest quartile of all of those in other conditions as not robust. In the second lowest quartile, as somewhat robust. In the second highest quartile, as robust and those that are in the highest quartile of evidence for all conditions as highly robust. Well, I'll put that actual table in the show notes so people can see that grading from lowest quartile to highest quartile, going from highly fragile to not fragile or not robust to highly robust. So I'll put that in the show notes itself. Now let's focus in on the modified Rankin scale. It's known to have some substantial inter-observer variability. Even by experienced researchers, the lowest kappa values are for MRS of 1 and 2, and reported by Quinn et al. in Stroke 2009 as 0.43 and 0.51, respectively. This is only considered moderately reliable. How do you think that could impact the stroke literature? Well, first, let me note that in the 13 years since the study of Quinn and colleagues, better methods have been developed to assign MRS scores, including the Rankin-focused assessment that our group developed and also the Rankin 9Q. These substantially further improve inter-rater agreement. But even in Quinn and colleagues' study, as you note, the kappa values were in range generally considered as showing moderate agreement, so not too bad. And to the modest extent that outcome raters do disagree, that introduces noise, but does not bias the estimand in one direction or another. Well, it's always good to talk about limitations in studies. And you mentioned a couple of limitations to your own study. One was that the IST3 used the uncertainty principle for inclusions, and that would bias the trial results towards the null and underestimate the robustness of the study. You did not mention the other limitation that IST3 was largely unblinded, and that would have biased the study potentially away from the null hypothesis. Well, as I noted earlier, in IST3, the final outcome was elicited by postal questionnaire from patients and their families six months after receiving the one-hour therapy. There's no credible reason to think that patients and families' self-reports that laid out would have been systematically biased in one direction or another. So we judged it as not having an impact on our analysis directionally. Jeff, I've not seen a cumulative fragility index ever reported. Have other authors reported this type of statistical analysis, or was this some new method that you've developed? As far as I know, our paper is the first time that in addition to reporting the final fragility index for all trials to date combined, a standard fragility index meta-analysis, that a cumulative fragility index analysis was also performed in which the evolving evidence space is tracked over time as each new randomized trial is reported. But this is a pretty straightforward extension of cumulative standard meta-analysis, so no cause for concern. Interestingly, the analysis showed that the evidence for intravenous TPA within three hours of onset was already robust with the publication of the two NINS TPA trials in 1995. It remained robust through the next four trials reported, 
with the 2012 IST3 trial, the evidence strength increased to highly robust, and it remains highly robust after the 2021 report of the TESPI trial. We all have biases, you, me, everyone, and there are many forms of bias that can impact research. Now, when I use the term bias, I'm talking about something that systematically moves us away from the quote-unquote truth, the best point estimate of an observed effect size with a confidence interval around that point estimate. Conflicts of interest, or COIs, are a reality of modern research. Conflicts of interest do not invalidate studies, but they've been identified as another potential source of bias in randomized control trials, systematic reviews, guidelines, even medical education. Now, you have been very open about your conflicts of interest, including this publication and other publications. So how do you think readers should interpret your conflicts of interest and others who have had similar conflicts of interest in the stroke literature? Well, for my COIs, I think it'd be helpful for readers to know that they are generally contracted hourly payments for service on clinical trial steering committees advising on rigorous trial design and conduct. I do think it's important to declare financial COIs, which too often in the past was not done by both proponents and opponents of lytic therapy in stroke, and also to recognize that simple matter membership in a particular medical specialty also creates conflict of interest. So it is important for authors to be transparent about and readers to consider COIs, but ultimately it is most important to focus on the science itself. Well, there has been a vocal minority who have expressed concerns about the stroke literature, and most of these voices seem to come from emergency physicians. Do you think that your new publication is going to change any hearts and minds? I hope so. I have spent my career working collaboratively and fruitfully with emergency physicians, and I have enormous respect for the specialty. With my emergency medicine colleague, Sid Starkman, I co-led the NIH FAST-MAG trial, which had over 700 emergency physician co-investigators, making it one of the largest emergency medicine research trials ever performed. Patient outcomes are best when neurologists and emergency physicians work collaboratively to optimize delivery of evidence-based treatments like thrombolytic therapy for stroke. I agree. We need to work together on team patient. But before we close, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to any of the comments made by the other neurologists we had recently on an SGEM Extra. That was Dr. Ravi Garg. Did you have an opportunity to listen to that episode? Yes, I did, Ken. And by the way, great choice of closing music for that episode. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. So uh, Dr. Garg did an analysis of NIN's data and published his findings in the BMC Medical Research Methodology. He specifically mentioned you and your response to the Hoffman-Schreiger graphic reanalysis. Do you have any general thoughts about Dr. Garg's publication? Well, my general thought is there are so many specific errors in it that it's challenging to provide a general comment. So uh, let me proceed to just calling out three key missteps in the article and one during his discussion on SGM Extra. For the article, first, the authors raised a concern that the method of random sequence generation was not specified, but this information is readily determinable by doing what I did in asking the original trial statistician it was pre-specified. 
and did not fit a category that would raise concern. Second, they raised concern that the allocation concealment that were completely unfounded. Yes, the active drug foamed when reconstituted, but so did the placebo by design, so that could not have led to unbinding. Yes, opaque envelopes were used to reveal next group assignment, but inside the envelopes were just study kit numbers, not a statement of the ARM assignment, so that also could not have led to unbinding. Third, yes, there were a small number of -of out-of-order randomizations where, unbeknownst to the investigators, a patient received one treatment instead of another, but the rigorous kit preparation free of identifiers meant this could only arise by chance, not intention. And importantly, as the FDA noted when it reviews this aspect of the study, the patients who ended up receiving placebo as a result of -of out-of-order randomization nominally had better outcomes, not worse outcomes, than the other placebo patients. Accordingly, if these changes had any impact at all, they are more likely to have led to underestimation of TPA benefit and not overestimation. And lastly, let me turn to a comment on your program that was particularly revealing. Dr. Garg stated that blood pressure in the trial were measured by nurses who were employees that provided the drug to NIH. That is an out-and-out falsehood. And initial blood pressures were measured by site coordinator nurses supported by NIH, not the company. And follow-up blood pressures were measured by the clinical bedside nurses who are part of the regular care team. This has been repeatedly clarified and confirmed in the INGAL's independent analysis. And this is emblematic of the pattern of Dr. Garg's analyses throughout well-established or easily established facts about the NINS trials and place them with bizarre suggestions of conspiracy. It's always a bit frustrating to have to address such obviously untrue claims, but listeners of this program can be assured that we really did land on the moon. 9-11 really was not an inside job, and the two NINS trials really were conducted in an unbiased manner. Well, those are your concerns and, and feedback with regards to Dr. Garg's publication and appearance on the uh, program. Do you think he made any reasonable points in his publication? No, his, his concerns are based on such deep misunderstandings of actual trial conduct that they should not have any impact on how we interpret the stroke literature. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Do you have any final thoughts on the stroke literature in general or anything else that you want to say? I just want to leave you with an open opportunity to make any comment that you would like. Thanks so much. I I will say that it is most welcome that for uh, TPA in under three-hour patients, it's now been demonstrated that the evidence base is one of the most robust in all of clinical medicine. Intravenous thrombolytics started the reperfusion revolution in stroke treatment, and endovascular thrombectomy has now further advanced it. It is great that we can use these treatments, both neurologists and emergency physicians, to substantially improve patient outcomes. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, for coming on the SGEM and discussing your study specifically and the stroke literature in general. Um, I really enjoyed the discussion. I greatly enjoyed being here, Ken. Thanks so much for having me on. And the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that KT window down, that knowledge translation window down, from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. 
so patients get the best care based on the best evidence. But before we go, Jeff, I need you to read the SGEM tagline. I'd be happy to. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. I'll fly.